Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, and I'm going to be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs, for another episode of In the Dirt. Before we jump in, I need to thank this week's sponsor, Bike Index. Bike Index is a nonprofit bicycle registry and stolen bike recovery platform. It's the type of service I hope you never need to use, but if you do, it's critically important that you have your bike registered. Simply go to bikeindex.org and set up a free account. All you need is to grab the serial number off your bike and have make, model, and color inserted. Think of it like insurance. It's there in the background if you need it. If your bike ever gets stolen, simply go to bikeindex.org, indicate that the bike has been stolen, and it's going to unlock the Bike Index volunteer community to look out for that stolen bike on platforms like Craigslist, OfferUp, and Facebook Marketplace. I'm not going to lie, it's a grim situation if your bike does get stolen. On average, I think in the U.S., your recovery rate is about 3 or 4%. With the Bike Index community involved, they've been able to get that up to 10%, which is pretty amazing. And seeing the victim recovery stories that come on the site, it's pretty heartwarming when you see the community come together to retrieve someone's stolen bike. I know how much I love my bikes and how much I'd hate to find any of them missing, and I know how much you love yours. So go on over to bikeindex.org, set up that free account. It's absolutely free. Everything, Every part of the service is free. Many local bike shops are integrated directly into Bike Index at their point of sale, so your bike automatically gets registered. And increasingly, the nonprofit is attempting to work with the bike industry directly to make things even more easy and seamless. Bike Index has helped recover almost $20 million in stolen bicycles since its inception. So the system works. It's just a question of visibility and awareness of the system. So head on over there today and check out bikeindex.org. With that said, let's jump right into my conversation with Randall. Hey, Randall, how you doing? Good to see you, buddy. I'm doing all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. It was good to catch up with you earlier this week. I realized, God, it's we've just both been slammed. It's been a while. Yeah, I've had, um, well, a project that I've been heads down on for quite some time that we'll allude to later. Uh, and then just otherwise, you know, life happens. But um, how about on your end? What do you got going on? Yeah, just busy with family stuff. Um, trying to get some riding in, but not doing that too, too successfully and trying not to beat myself up over it. I do have a shiny new titanium frame in my garage right now with no parts on it. So yeah. I want to talk to you about that. Very good. Very good. Um, how about we nerd out about some other tech in the news before we dive into that build? Yeah, there have been a few interesting things that have come out. So let's let's jump in. What's on your mind? Uh, so the thing that I find most interesting is this new motor system. Uh, it's actually really the, it seems like the core technology is a transmission for e-bikes. Uh, this TQ-HPR50 e-bike motor and a harmonic pin ring transmission. That, that's um, a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, someone needs to rebrand this thing. Yeah, um, something simple. It's interesting that you pulled that up. I, that did catch my radar as well, particularly because I'd been getting some positive feedback on an episode I did and released recently with Crow Bicycles and just kind mm -hmm. of putting out there the concept of e-bikes, e-gravel bikes specifically, and how they can fit into our lives harmoniously, to use a word from the, the, <laughs> the description there. And I was surprised, womp, you know, womp. 
I know in talking to Jason over the gravel cyclist, anytime he posts anything about an e-gravel bike, he gets a lot of haters coming out of the woodwork. I, I didn't get any of that. And in fact, the opposite, I got a few lovers that reached out to me and said, hey, you know, the things that you described about e-gravel bikes are exactly what's going on in my life. I may have, you know, dropped a step because of injury or age. And um, the e-bike is now allowing me to go out and do the types of riding I want to do, you know, experience riding with a wide variety of people much younger than me. And I just thought that was really cool and a great reminder to us all that, you know, in my opinion, e-bikes are going to be part of all of our lives in one way or another down the line. And spending any time or energy hating on them is, is really hating on the wrong thing. Well, and there's, you know, there's e-bikes that are borderline mopeds or, or, you know, e-motorcycles. And then there's these, you know, lighter duty, um, you know, three, 250, 300 watt max sort of uh, e-bike systems. That's kind of much more U plus. And I don't really see these as having a significant negative impact on the broader cycling community. And, you know, as I, as I age, granted, I'm, I'm only turning 40 this summer, but I don't ride as much as I, I otherwise might. And so I think back, like in the past, knocking out a hundred mile epic day was something that I could definitely do. But um, even now I could see wanting to have a bike like this so that I could say commute from where I live to, you know, into the city or and hit some trails on the way there, um, or just turn a 20 mile ride into a 35 mile ride. Um, when I, you know, to, to be able to access stuff that I can't access from my home instead of having to throw my bike in a car. Uh, so this is where this motor come becomes interesting for me because I like how, well, it has a few things that, that I think are, are really uh, beneficial in that regard. Yeah. What are the things that you like about it and how does it differ from what might be in the listener's mind about e-bikes in general being sort of heavy and clunky and whatnot? So as I am evaluating this, granted, I'm, I'm reading the same, you know, articles that you know, everyone has access to. Um, but you know, it seems like the core technology is this, you know, harmonic pin ring transmission. And so this allows the entire drive unit to be a lot more compact. So when you look at like a, a mid-drive e-bike system, which is what this is, a significant portion of the, the volume and the mass is actually the, the transmission because you have to take this motor, which is, you know, putting out low torque at higher RPM, and you need to convert that to low RPM, high torque. You know, so you want it to be optimized around, you know, 60, 80, 90 RPM, which is where, you know, a, a rider is pedaling. But that motor might be, you know, designed for, uh, you know, optimal efficiency at, you know, 500 or 1,000. And to get a, a, a motor that puts out big torque at low RPM, the motor has to get huge. So, I mean, this is just, there's just physics issues associated with this. And so they're using this really... Um, uh, interesting harmonic pin ring system, which is hard to describe. You really need to see a visualization of how it's working uh, to understand, but it allows the entire transmission system to more or less fit in this more compact, really narrow form factor with a lot of the elements being concentric with each other. And so it allows for a, a system that's lightweight, um, compact, and narrow. So you could actually get a standard Q factor too. So now we're getting into the realm of this being um, really starting to feel like your regular bike but with, you know, a, a, a bit of boost. Yeah. When you look at some of the, the sh photographs of the Trek bicycle that's been going around that has this, this uh, product installed on it, you're right with a carbon frame, the way you can shape the tubes, all the electronics and the motor 
tend to disappear. When you think back a few years, it was pretty darn obvious when you looked at the BB of some of these e-bikes out there that there was a, a motor down there, but this one's getting way more stealth-like to your point. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's something where, you know, it's not something that I'm going to go out and buy myself. It, you know, I, the, the standard bicycle still fits my needs very well. Um, but it is cool to see things going in this direction. I don't know how, uh, you know, how efficient this system is. I don't know how durable it is. It's a new thing, right? Um, but just the form factor element of it and the fact that they're really focusing on um, a lower level of assist and a lower level of torque to keep the system more compact and have it be much more of an assist um, versus, you know, again, like an e-moped uh, is something that I think is, is a step in the right direction and will make the sort of bikes that, you know, an enthusiast will, will want to either transition to or add to their stable at some point. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to just see where this part of the industry has gone and will continue to go. Obviously, over the first years of e-bikes being out there, they were getting a lot of feedback. You know, it may have started by commuters who could care less about the performance element. They just wanted to get from point A to point B um, efficiently and weren't really considering it a bicycle. It was more a, you know, a, a, a glorified moped. But mm -hmm. now, you know, you're getting these bikes that have clearly been informed in these products and drivetrains and motors that have been informed by real riders out there on the trail. And I think they're cutting out the elements maybe and power that they may have once thought they needed and putting it into a more integrated lightweight system. That is, you're still a real cyclist using these bikes, but you're using the engine in certain situations to get you you know, up the mountain faster or what have you to, to really create these enjoyable opportunities. Well, it, it is thinking philosophically too, as we're talking about this system in general, um, there's a, a famous car designer named Gordon Murray. Uh, he was behind the McLaren F1, which is this like legendary vehicle um, from the nineties that had like insane power, but was extraordinarily lightweight. And it just, the, the performance of it just blew everything out of the water. These are some of the most expensive cars, um, on the market today, I think they go for like $30 million if you want to own one, because they were just so singularly designed. And his philosophy was add lightness. And when you add lightness, a lot of other things um, you know, benefit. So if you have a really light e-bike system, you don't have to beef up the frame. You don't have to you know, use heavier cogs. You don't have to use beefier wheels because you haven't added all this additional mass. Um, so all these things come together to make it so that, again, you're much more seamless. Now, I will say, it still doesn't go as far as I would like in terms of, you know, nobody has made what I consider the holy grail of e-bike systems, which is something that is, can be um, dropped in in seconds and then removed in seconds with essentially leaving no hardware behind. So you can have, you know, the one bike that's in, uh, a bicycle and an e-bike. Uh, but as far as like a dedicated e-bike is concerned, if this lives up to the hype, um, it's supposed to be a lot quieter too. Um, if the you know responsiveness is seamless and so on, uh, this looks really promising and should uh, nudge the industry in a in a good direction. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, we don't want to dedicate too much time on mm. e-bike technology, lest we scare off our hardcore gravel riding <laughs> listeners. So, uh, what do you got next? Yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll, I guess a lot going on in the world of gravel racing. I don't think we'll spend any time on it, but you know, we're mid-season now and lots of great events going off. So I hope our listeners are out there, I, hopefully doing more than I've been doing, because I certainly haven't been able to hit a lot of group rides or events yet this year, but I mm. hope, to, hope to get out there in the, in the near future. 
Well, for any of our New England riders, I will be at Rooted Vermont. I'll be wearing a an undersized uh, Gravel Ride podcast jersey given to me by Craig. Um, it's undersized because it was too small when he gave it to me and because I've maybe expanded a little bit since then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you're going to be at that event, uh, come hang out. I'd love to, I'd love to meet. Uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. A, a big part of why I do it. I'm sure you'll be shouting people out in the ridership forum as well. So if you're interested in getting connected with Randall on that, just head on over to the ridership at uh, theridership.com. Little plug yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. All right. What else do we want to go talk about before we dive into your your uh, bike build? You know, I mean that it's that's certainly top of mind with me. The bike right, build. I mean, it's it. a couple other little things that have come out, but maybe we save those for another discussion. Very good. All right. So you got your you got your frame that arrived. How's it look? Yeah, it looks great. So I mean, I don't think I've specifically said this on the podcast, but I've I I've been working with Jason at Unicorn Cycles to manufacture this titanium frame for me. Mm-hmm. I got it in, you know, it, it had been in the works for many, many weeks, a couple months, in fact, and I'd sort of forgotten about the exact timeline. And now all of a sudden I've got the frame in the garage and like everybody else in the bike world, I'm struggling to find parts. I think mm-hmm. I've got line of sight and I certainly have my vision for what the bike is, how the bike is going to be configured. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about that because, you know, so much of our, our discussion over the last couple of years has been around how do we help riders find the right bikes for them? A lot of great mm-hmm. options out there. And in many ways, what I've discovered of late is that the choices are becoming both more plentiful, but also more specific in nature. So the more you know about the type of riding you want to be doing, the more specific type of bike you can acquire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, listeners will know that I'm a, a proponent of, you know, one bike, right? So a single bike that is kind of endurance road geo, but then has the clearance and capability to, to tackle more technical stuff. And we talked about that, um, but due to your particular application for this bike and the, you know, some of the constraints around working with the, the material, um, uh, in this case, titanium, I uh, just, you decided to go into more of a, what is still a, a, a reasonably uh, responsive geometry, but still one that's pushing more into a dirt focus. Yeah. And I think that it was really interesting having those discussions with you and Jason about what I wanted in a bike. And the more and more I came back to it, the more I had to admit that the vast majority of my riding here in Marin is very yeah. technical. It's, you know, it's all dirt. It's very little like smooth fire road. And why am I not riding a bike that is, you know, specific to my 90% of the terrain that I'm riding. So I'm, yeah. I'm pretty stoked. Obviously there were some fit requirements that came out of my fit earlier this year. I needed a, a, a longer um, head tube to accommodate. I need, just need the stem to be higher up, the bars to be higher up um, for my aging lower back. And then, you know, lots of other things with titanium came up that just, yeah, I just don't think about when, if you're going into a shop to buy a bike or buying one online, you're not thinking about cable routing and holes in the frame. But when those questions were posed to me, like, well, do you want us to poke a bunch of holes in the frame so you can have mechanical uh, drivetrain or a, um, you know, internally routed dropper post? All of a sudden I was like, wow, I, I need to think about this. Like, Am I all in on a, an electronic dropper or an electronic drivetrain? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that the direction you went in makes a tremendous amount of sense, especially since SRAM was gracious enough to send a, a uh, an electric group set your way. Yeah, no, um, I was. I mean, I've, I've been stoked to have their support, um, and so that made that choice easy. I've been riding that electronic drivetrain from SRAM, the Explore Grupo, for a while now on a Canyon demo bike that I had in the garage and loved it. And I've never, never got into a situation where the battery was drained unexpectedly. Like I think the technology has come along a long ways. And the beautiful thing about that SRAM setup, particularly with the RockShock dropper post, the batteries are all interchangeable. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. know, if you get into a pinch, you can always take the battery out of your dropper post and put it into your derailleur, for example. And and if you're going on a long bikepacking adventure, it's not a big deal to take one of these tiny little batteries and put it in your bag. It's not a huge amount of weight. So that's that's not really... Um, while I would prefer to have centralized power on the bike and maybe a wireless communication, the fact that there's batteries spread around the bike is not as big of a deal as you might think. Um so I, and I think it makes sense for a bike that you might be like partially disassembling and packing up and things like that too. It just makes it that much easier to deal with. Yeah, for sure. And I think that goes back to some of our discussions around the, the e-bike drivetrains. Like I think in time, these things will tend towards getting more and more integrated. I know we saw from Cannondale, that bike that had sort of an integrated battery setup that could attach to lights and different parts of the bike, which I think is interesting. And like these are all baby steps in the right direction for that integrated dream that sh- that you referenced. So um, those who who know me well will know that uh, in a in a past life I was uh, uh, building a project called Open Bike, which was like the open electronics and software platform for bikes, and that was kind of the idea to create this open at the time CAN bus based protocol, which was like the same protocol used for your in your. Um, automotive components to allow them to communicate in a secure and and very robust way, and then delivering just 7.4 volts to whoever wants it. Um, I'd do it differently this way. I'd I'd love to see a standard come out where there's like a 7.4 volt battery somewhere on the bike that any device can tap into, and then everything communicates via an open Bluetooth wireless protocol. And that's actually would probably be the, the simplest way to execute it. But, you know, companies don't want their stuff to be interoperable. They want you to, you know, buy the the entire the entire kit. That's that's how our industry works. That's how most yeah. industries work. Yeah, I think that's the rub. And obviously, you experienced that as an entrepreneur in your past life. That it's just it's so hard to get alignment with a lot of the big manufacturers to to do something as obvious as what that system sounds like. Yeah, yeah. You really need to to. Um, I mean, politically, it's really the the, politi- the the politics of it. And there's lots of companies that are kind of shut out of the market because they can make a thing, but not the whole system. But they don't have the budget to to invest in, you know, helping to stand up a big platform. But yeah. but that's a that's a I guess this goes into the Randall's rants uh, section of the pod <laughs> that we kicked out. <laughs> but no, maybe I- someday. I hear you on that. I mean, I don't want to rant myself, but uh, with when I put my bike index nonprofit hat on in talking to the manufacturers, it's just like, it's so hard to knock down anyone, even with the greatest idea in the world that's free to consumers in the, in the case of bike index, like they're just getting anybody to actually move, let alone getting multiple parties to move, which would move the entire industry seems impossible some days. 
Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, it's impossible until you get a critical mass and then it's easy, but it's the critical mass that's hard to, to get rolling. Yeah, um, 100%. So I did want to chime in with one thought uh, because we mentioned geometry and you having some some unique needs. And I just want to clarify, you said like, because you're getting older and your back and whatever else that you needed a taller head tube, which is effectively like a taller stack, right? Yep. You know, you need the handlebar higher in relation to the bottom bracket. Um, but actually your position is not, your new position is is entirely in the, the the normal part of the bell curve. It's that you are a rather leggy blonde. <laughs> you're like, you know, a bit over 5'9", and you run the same saddle height that I run at um, 5'11". And so, you know, as a consequence, you oftentimes will get sized, you know, in our case, we put you on a medium because otherwise you would have been on a stubby stem on the large. And so yours is a scenario, a scenario where you don't necessarily need uh, a custom bike, but your proportions make it so that there's some things that are harder to get in a non-custom bike, especially as bikes become longer, um, you know, in the gravel segment. Yeah, that's so true. And I remember with my thesis, you had suggested early on hey, why don't you try a large? Like, I think that'll work for you as well. And, and you gave me the option, you know, you, you're like, you're kind of in the middle. You, I can see it working on both. And I've always had an inclination to ride a smaller bike. I think it comes back to when I first started mountain biking on hardtails and thought that a smaller frame was going to be a lighter frame. And, you know, I just love that <laughs> standover height. But when you're talking about the the gravel bike geometry, you know, I had the the sort of drop from from the saddle height to the bars of like a a professional road cyclist, and that's not sustainable for for any number of reasons. And I, you know, yeah. I've come to the conclusion it probably wasn't even a good uh, technical position for me. Meaning, I think I'll have a lot yeah. higher performance being higher up than than lower down when I hit the mm -hmm. steeps up in Marin County. Yeah, you'll be more comfortable on the tops, and then those those flared drops will be that much more accessible. Um, with the dropper that you're running. So, so yeah, that's the, and, and then in terms of the, like this being less of a one bike, it's really slacker head angle and um, longer chain stays, longer wheelbase. Like those are the primary things that, that make this bike still like, a, a, it, I would imagine it's still going to ride really well as a road bike. It's just not going to have that responsiveness that say something that's more on the end of the spectrum of like our bike or the Cervelo Aspero or, you know, the, um, uh, what is it? The Allied Able? Is that their their one bike? Or the Echo, maybe? Echo. The Echo. Yeah. yeah. Um, these are bikes that really are truly, you know, endurance road bikes or even like full-on performance road bike geometry. Uh, and that, you know, that's a different feel. Uh, but yeah. let's talk about the rest of your build. So you're doing SRAM Axis group set, one by yep. mullet setup, right? Yep. Yep. So I'm using a mountain bike rear derailleur. So yep. I think current gearing, I've got a 38 chain ring up front and a 1050 in the back. So okay. big, big spectrum. Like I haven't had any issues climbing around here with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so excited about that. I've, I met up with Endura bearings at Sea Otter and was talking to them. I've always had in my head, Oh, I'm going to get a ceramic bottom bracket. If I ever do a, you know, ground up build and, you know, in talking to them, they were like, you know, unless you want to do a decent amount of maintenance, like, mm. why don't you go with a stainless steel bottom bracket? And I was like, yes, avoiding maintenance is a good idea for me. I do tend to ignore my bike's needs a little bit more than I should. So that sounded like a good option. And in talking to them and understanding their bearing technology, like I was like, this is going to be a good choice for the BB. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that that's probably a technical episode at some point 
on its own. Um, but I, I dove into this for the new wheel program that we're, um, we'll be alluding to later um, to see if and, you know ceramic bearings would be a, you know, a, a valued and, and actually value adding option. And the reality is that for the vast majority of riders who don't have a sponsor and a mechanic, no, like they, you might get some, some minor, you know, um, trivial benefit early on because you don't have to run, you can run lighter seals. You can, you don't have to run as much uh, lube or you can run a lighter lube, but they contaminate really easy. They break down really easy. You got to stay on top of them. They're not going to last as long. And so you very quickly get out of the sweet spot of where they're, they have more efficiency and into the realm of where they're actually less efficient than a stainless steel bearing set, yeah. um, a traditional bearing set. And so, you know, there's a reason why, you know, a lot of companies, like I, I think Envy doesn't actually wrote a blog post about this. Um, you see other companies that'll, that'll put in some ceramic stuff just as a, a marketing ploy. But honestly, I, if you gave them to me, I still wouldn't put them in the wheel in my own wheels. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so that's, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot to unpack there and, and I'll, I'm sure to have the guys at Endura on the podcast to talk a little bit more about that. But from Rick Sutton's mouth to my bike, I thought stainless makes a lot of yeah. sense. All right. So you got yeah. a, you get a sweet stainless, uh, T47, you get a threaded bottom yeah. bracket. Yeah. Threaded yeah. bottom bracket. And then I'm, I'm going down a little bit on the crank length. So I'm going to be using a SRAM crank, but I'm going down to a 170 which has been a mm-hmm. long time coming. I think you and I spoke about this, gosh, you know, a year and a half ago, if not more, and you yep. successfully convinced me I should be on 170 cranks. It's just taken me this long to actually find, you know, to, to make the effort to get a pair underneath me. And and we won't go into the weeds on this, but our recommendation is generally 22% approximately of saddle height, if, assuming saddle height is set properly and thus a good proxy for this. Um, if you want to hear the whole story about this, listen to the Bike Fit 101 episode that I did with Patrick Carey. We went deep nerd on cranks. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of those things like once you have a pair of cranks on your bike, it's it's hard pressed to like find the money to replace them. But one, yeah. if you're able to think about it or working with a manufacturer like you guys who offers proportional cranks to customers, like it's a great time to think about that mm-hmm. and throw out like what you used to think about crank length. Because I think a lot of us, had these numbers in our head that have just never changed over the last 20 years. Well, and the reality of the situation is that, uh, you know, bicycles, bike product managers tend to be, look roughly like me, like 5'11 to six foot skinny, shave-legged white guys in Lycra who build bikes for themselves and component makers cater to them. And so a lot of component makers, even even now, but in, until recently, um, uh, didn't um, offer anything for especially smaller riders, like the shortest you could get was a 170 or 165. Um, I had to go to a, a a different manufacturer and have 155s made specifically for us. They had to cut new tools for us so that I could accommodate our smaller riders properly. And there's you know there's there's a whole bunch of benefits that come from that from a bike design standpoint if you design the whole bike around that. But we won't get in the weeds there. We'll save that for a uh, a new frame set episode or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I think that that'll be a subtle benefit for you. Cause I think you're dropping, you know, 2.5 millimeters, but the rea- you know, the torque is the difference in torque is trivial and whatever percentage change you have in torque, you also have that same percentage change in RPM at the same foot speed. So you're really not, you're not losing any power. Torque yeah. is not power. And that's a, yeah. a common misconception. 
I'm honestly not imagining that I return to the microphone knowing and feeling a lot different around <laughs> those cranks. But again, like I do, I think the the logic is sound on why to go that direction for me. Yeah. And I, I don't have any concerns about going uh, with a shorter crank length. Yeah. But for our smaller listeners, it's it's a significant deal. If you have the opportunity, get a, get shorter cranks that are proportional to, to your actual body. Yeah. hundred percent. Like you imagine like a five, five woman who's been riding one seventy two five cranks her entire cycling career mm-hmm. dropping oh, yeah. down, um, it would be a meaningful difference in shift. And, and as you said before, like just open up possibilities, frankly. Yeah. It cha- changes the position that you ride in. It changes, you know, for a lot of riders, how comfortable they are on the bike, the smoothness of their pedal stroke, particularly as they get tired and fatigued and those mechanics go away. You, you have to be a lot less deliberate about how you're pedaling and, you know, much more like a sewing machine. Yeah. Anyways, I'm, I'm now repeating the, uh, the bike fit episode. So we'll, we'll leave it there. Go look that 100%. one up. hundred uh, <laughs> percent going forward on the bike. Um, on the headset side, I'm putting a, a wolf tooth headset in there. I love those guys. I think they're super innovative in what they do and the, the stuff's high quality. I'm also getting a seat collar mm-hmm. for those guys. Um, and they make they, a they, lot of like innovative little solutions for various things. Like they're always coming up with little mounting solutions and stuff like that, which is pretty neat. A hundred percent. Every time I talk to those guys and they show me a new tool, there's such thought that goes into every little bit of what they've manufactured. I just really appreciate it. And I've, I've come to think of those guys anytime I little need a, a small part for my bike, whether it's bolts or a collar or a lock ring or Increasingly, if I want an accent of color on a bike, those guys, like they just have me completely covered with options. Yeah. 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 And then uh, we alluded to this, but I, I, I decided rather than, which my first thought was, I was going to build this bike with a rigid fork right off the bat. I've been riding the RockShock gravel fork, the Explore fork for some time on one of the demo bikes I've gotten. And I, I've come to love and, and, uh, crave that on the descents. And I thought, what the heck, why don't I just start from day one with that fork on this bike and see where it takes me? I think it makes sense. Given the rest of the build, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, I do, I do sort of have a question. Obviously I've ridden that fork on the road a little bit, but I've never done you know, a proper road ride or I haven't ridden down the coast, which I'm prone to do once a year down the coast of California. I'll be curious whether I feel the need, desire to swap that fork out for a rigid fork when I do that type of riding. I suspect, um, so I don't know how effective the lockout is. Um, so there there could be a tiny little bit of play, but if you're in the saddle spinning, that's not really a big deal. Um, it's obviously going to weigh more, um, materially more, but you know, as a percentage of bike body and gear, okay, it's it's not huge. I think the biggest thing is actually going to be the responsiveness of the steering because the axle, the crown is going to increase so much that it's going to increase the, um, the, uh, trail figure of the bike, which is the, yeah. the caster effect, the, the, you know, the way the, the, the contact point of the wheel kind of trails behind, you know, where the, uh, you know, the, the axis of the steering is. Yeah. And I said, so that'll be we, the big thing. Absolutely. It's something we talked about in the last episode when we dug into the design and, factoring in when I was running the suspension fork that all those things were going to come to be. And it will be interesting just as the proof, the proof is going to be on the trail and on the roads. 
how mm-hmm. I feel about those shifts. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of wish that that exact fork would allow, say you to run it in the fully compressed position locked yeah. and be able to get that, you know, be able to get that, that would actually allow, I'd have to look at the rest of the geometry numbers, but something along those lines would allow this to be much more of a, you know, of a, of a one bike, at least in terms of the responsiveness of the front end. Uh, there was a yeah. fork made by RockShox called the Talus uh, years ago that had adjustable suspension and it basically reduced the travel starting from the bottom up. So you actually, the, 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 the top out point changed. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was a cool feature, but I think there were maybe not as reliable. Yeah, it makes sense. I think in any well-designed suspension system, going back to your question on like lockout, RockShox got a great lockout mechanism on there, but I found I don't use it a whole ton, you know, even when I'm climbing mm. or even on the road, like I just tend to leave it open cause I'm not super bothered by it, but it, it's Which there is, if I need it. Well, and that's a sign of a, of a well-designed damping system. Yeah. Or in, in a well-designed and a well um, set up damping system. Like if, if your fork is of high quality and is set up properly, you should leave it open. It's going to be faster. Uh, yeah. and, you know, that Craig, Craig, uh, Craig Calfi and I talked about this at length for road bikes and uh, he had me convinced um, and that was on a road application. So that was a super fascinating conversation. If the listener hadn't heard that one, definitely jump back in the feed and find the conversations with Craig Calfi. Yeah. Um, deep nerdery there. Yeah. If this wasn't yeah. enough for you, um, <laughs> all right, what, what other parts of the build do we want to talk about? Yeah. I mean, then onto wheels, like I'm going to, I'm going to do two sets of wheels with this bike primarily to continue to crystallize my opinions and feelings on the different wheel sizes and to be able to test a variety of tires. So I've got a set of zip 303s on the 700 C side, but I'm also super excited to work with you on the 650 B side. Yeah. So we, um, Anyone who's in the the ridership will have seen some some uh, conversation around a wheel program that we're about to launch. Uh, that is coming. Uh, you know, we are actually already doing community pre sale pre sales in stealth mode, and these are we have a twenty nine, a six fifty, and a seven hundred uh, with star ratchet hub internals and you know benchmark uh, performance and versatility and durability. Uh, built around kind of open standards and and you know readily available components like high end components, but components that you can easily source if need be, um, with some other um, with some other benefits and at a price point that is accessible to the grassroots. So if anyone who's listening, if we haven't, uh, we'll be doing an episode in the future to go through that program in detail. Uh, but anyone listening who would like early access, just drop us a note at support at thesis.bike, and I'll send you the details personally. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm excited about that. Obviously, like I got the chance and opportunity to ride uh, an early set at the Sea Otter gravel race um, a few months ago. Yeah, you rode the 700C set, which um, is we have the high impact bead hooks on those and it's a 24 millimeter internal. So you can run, you know, anything from a 28 millimeter non-tubeless to a 55 on those wheels. And they're... uh, 1,365 grams. I don't think this was the intent when lending me that wheel set, but I certainly tested the high impact functionality of them. In that <laughs> yeah, you were underbiked for sure. You would have been better with the uh, the 650s that uh, we're ultimately going to be setting you up with for this build. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I've been riding on a on an earlier thesis wheel set. I've been riding a, a 50, 650 by fifty millimeter tire on the front, and I love it. Like I was having this discussion the other day with a local friend who's debating seven hundred by six fifty, and I was like, I, I I don't really need to get involved in that particular debate because I think both have their attributes, and you know, you you can't go too wrong. But what I, I really believe is that you know tire volume is just a critical component to the mix. And particularly for this rider and for myself being uh, being where we are in Marin and the type of riding we do, like I'm all about as big as tire as possible that I can get oh, yeah. in there. Hands down, hands down. Yeah, bigger tire volume um, and then being able to run lower pressures with a, a, a nice wide rim to support it. Um, I would actually suggest if you haven't been doing this already, uh, tire inserts, especially in Marin, because the amount of, the, the rockiness of some of the terrain and just the amount of speed that you can get given how mountainous it is, uh, would be a, I think that'd be a big benefit. Yeah. hundred percent. I've got a, I've got a set of crush cores in the garage that I just haven't installed on a bike. And it's a good reminder that, uh, when the 650 wheel set arrives, I should put those in there with those tires and go out and uh, abuse my bike and body as much as possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to get those over to you. Um, and for anyone who knows our existing 650s, it's the same rim, but lighter with the same strength. And it's the same hub internals, but lighter with higher end materials and just an overall uh, improved package, but with the same you know design philosophy of what we do before. So you know this is something we've been having in the works for a while. So it'd be nice to see it built up on your, your new steed. Yeah. And I have to say, like, I, I wouldn't profess to be the rider that rides the most mileage on those wheels, but I, f- I do feel like I've put those rims through a lot of abuse testing over the last 18 months on the 650 set, um, because I, I, I definitely ride them hard. There's no question about it. Yeah. There's, I mean, every, in a, assuming that, you know, a lot of companies are like, we all have access roughly to the same materials and technologies and things like that. So if you're getting something that is significantly lighter, but it's not like take a rim, for example, to make a lighter rim, if everything else is the same, same materials and manufacturing technology, resins and so on, well, you get asked, what are you compromising? Are you making it narrower? Are you making you know, less material? Are you using um, a high amount of high modulus carbon, which is lighter and stiffer for the weight, but doesn't have the impact resistance? Uh, so everything is an optimization function. And so that'll be a, a conversation I think will be really fun from a technical standpoint to just um, talk about product decisions in general, because it applies not just to wheels, it applies to everything on the bike. Everything is this, this kind of optimization of you know, strength and durability and what actually improves performance versus what is a good marketing story. Yeah, across the board. And I think that this journey to creating this custom frame set and designing the components I wanted to expect... Uh, spec on the bike. It was really like Craig Dalton, bicycle product designer with a great Mm. group of advisors such as yourself on board to help me through that process. But there were so many junctions along the way where I had to make a decision. And it it was easier for me because I was making a decision about myself, my long legs, you know, my lower back, all these things that were specific to me. But when you're a product designer at a bigger company or even a smaller company, you've got to make decisions around a theoretical rider, um, which I don't, I don't envy those decisions because I, I'm sure and you can go back to the many times you've been a product designer in your career 
as to these <laughs> trade-offs that you had to make that you weren't super happy about, but they were just required to move the project forward? Uh, two big ones. I remember one was limiting the tire clearance on a, on a new, like really important frame because any more tire clearance, it'd be classified as a mountain bike for uh, customs. And so it was like 7% more duty. And then, um, putting on little bolt on plastic elastomer pieces on a bike so that the marketers could say that it magically absorbs shock. <laughs> those, are, those are the two of the ones that stand out in my mind that were pretty hard to swallow. <laughs> without question, without question. Well, cool, dude. It was great to catch up. If I could ask anything of the listener, just say a little prayer for me that my parts come in in any time in the near future. I have to go down to LA for a few weeks in August. So I'm, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, toes crossed, that I can A, get the parts in and B, find a mechanic who will help me because there's a few pieces like I don't have a headset press. I'm concerned I won't have the right bottom bracket tool. And as you and I have been discussing, I don't know if I can you know, effectively bleed my brakes given what I have at, at home today. Well, if, if, you, uh, if you need a handle on the way, you can call me or post in the ridership. <laughs> yeah. Or, 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 or cruise around YouTube and hope I find a reputable source. Yeah. But we'll yeah. see. There is some pride in in building up my own bike to the degree in which is possible with the tools that I have. So super stoked that this project is finally going to be underneath me, hopefully in the next two to four weeks. And certainly we'll be sharing pictures on social media and impressions, I'm sure, as you and I get an opportunity to catch up again. Yeah, that'll be great. All right, my friend. All right, my friend. Always, yeah. always a pleasure. We'll talk soon. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast in the Dirt. One quick correction, Randall was kind enough not to shout me out during the broadcast. I was saying Endura bearings, but it's Enduro bearings, of course. So make sure to check them out. I'll put them in the show notes. Super excited. I had my hands on that stainless steel bottom bracket just before recording. Super beautiful. The bearings move so smoothly. I can't wait to get that bike together. The parts are slowly trickling in, so hopefully in the next few weeks I'll have that new Unicorn Titanium bike with all those great parts underneath me and I can give you a little bit of feedback on the ride quality and how that custom fit is really translating to my trail riding. If you're interested in connecting with us, I encourage you to join the ridership. It's a free global cycling community. Simply visit www.theridership.com. If you're able to support the podcast, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. Or if you have a moment, ratings and reviews are hugely helpful in getting this podcast discovered. I really appreciate all the efforts on my behalf to spread the word and share your enjoyment of this podcast. So until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs>